be heard well over my words this morning. Father, we need to hear from you. Would you meet us in this place by your spirit? It's in Jesus' name and for his sake that we ask this thing. Amen. You may be seated. My grandfather, like many uh, men of his generation, was a veteran of World War II. And my grandfather uh, would not, it was well known uh, that he would not talk about his experiences in the war. And me, I remember being a young kid, I remember hearing that my grandfather had gone to war and he had written some memoirs, so I knew a little bit about what had happened. And I would have loved to sit and listen to my grandfather talk about his experiences in the war. Because I knew that he was involved in some serious engagements over there, some serious high-profile engagements in Europe. He was at the, his unit was involved in, in taking the uh, bridge at Remagen for those guys who are uh, into World War II history. But he was also, his unit was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. And so my grandfather was right in the thick of things, but he never talked about his experiences in World War II. And we come to know now, now that we're several generations along, what they used to call shell shock, we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. And a lot of soldiers, many soldiers who have been in combat, combat are struggling with and dealing with this in some degree. And so it's understandable now looking back on it as a grown man, having gone through police work myself and experiencing my own traumas, understanding how difficult it is for him to deal with those things. And so my grandfather, 40 years later, goes to surgery. He has heart surgery a few years before he passes away. And as he's waking up from his surgery and he's still under anesthesia, my father tells me that, that he was in there with my granddad. And he says, my granddad was in a lot of distress and turmoil and he was thrashing around in his bed and he kept calling out the name of a particular lieutenant. And my grandfather, that name, he, or my father recognized that name from the memoirs that my grandfather had written. And that lieutenant that my, my grandfather was uh, calling out in his, as he was waking up from anesthesia, it turns out that, uh, that my father had heard this story before from my grandfather's memoirs. And what happened was my grandfather's, one of his responsibilities was to run messages from his company to other companies. And one day this lieutenant, his lieutenant came to him and said, Hey, Sneed, I've got this one this morning. I need to go see the sergeant or whoever over in the other company, so I'll run the messages today. Well, the lieutenant left his company, ran the same exact route at the same time that my grandfather would have run it, and he was struck and killed by an artillery shell. And so for the rest of his life, my grandfather dealt with a, a kind of guilt, though it was not his fault that this happened, but he, he was left with it, a kind of guilt and even a grieving that this man, this young lieutenant, had given his life doing the mission that my grandfather was called to do. And my grandfather, some 40 years later, though he was trying to put it in the back of his head, it still came out and he thought about this young lieutenant. Now, I know that my grandfather was thankful to God that he came home from the war and he was able to be with his wife and his kids and see his grandkids grow up. But for the rest of his life, there was a sense of grief that another man died completing the mission that was my grandfather's mission. And so I think in a lot of ways, as I was thinking about this story of my grandfather, I think in a lot of ways that God has also given all of us a mission. If we're married, he's given us a mission to love our wives and give our, our lives uh, away for our spouse. If we're parents, he's taught, he's given us this mission to uh, raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But as Christians, I think this passage and other passages like it, I think the scriptures are full of this idea that God has given his people 
a mission. And I think in American Christianity, we have an idea, we tend to have this idea that Christianity or that salvation is all about us getting a ticket out of hell and into heaven. That that's God's primary concern is to save the soul from hell, as we talked about today. And while that is certainly very much and certainly very key to our relationship with God and what he is accomplishing and redeeming us, we see over and over again in the scriptures that God doesn't stop there, that when God redeems and saves people, he redeems and saves them for a purpose. He gives them a mission to go out and do. You remember Matthew 28, Jesus gives his church the last thing he says before he ascends into heaven to sit at the right hand of his father, he gives the church the great commission. He gives us a mission. In this passage, Paul, I think, is reminding us, the church, that we have a mission as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But just as uh, it's, it's really interesting how God works, and I'm preaching this passage today, and we were here last week, my family and I, and, and uh, Adam was teaching on John 6. And Adam was speaking about the gospel, and he was talking about how uh, the Christ-centeredness of the gospel, how we don't do anything to earn our place with God, that our unity in Christ comes because of God's work, not our work. And in that, some people asked Jesus this question. They said, what are the works of God that we're supposed to do? You remember when he said that? And what was Jesus' answer in John 6? He said, the works of God that he has given you to do is to believe in the one that he has sent, to believe in Jesus. That seems very simplistic, right? That all you have to do is just believe in Jesus. But I think that this is a key point. I think Jesus is driving us to something that we have a mission to do, but the mission or the works that we do before the Father that he has called us to do have to be grounded and rooted in faith. I think a lot of us have this idea that our salvation comes through grace comes through faith alone, and we're right about that. Salvation comes through, by grace through faith alone. We can do nothing. We can contribute nothing to it. But then some of us think that sanctification is that we work really hard to prove that or to live that out, that, it's, that that work is up to us and our strength and our power. But Paul says in Colossians 2.12, says a very interesting passage. He says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? You received him by grace through faith, alone. And how do you walk in him? By grace through faith, alone. So this message is about God giving us a mission, but we cannot be confused with where this message lies. This message lies downstream of the gospel, that all of what we do for him is by faith, and it's by God's grace that he is working in us. This is not what we do for him but what God is doing in us by his gospel, by his grace. Look with me in verse 17. Paul begins this passage with one of the most beautiful. It's interesting in these five verses, there's two beautiful pictures of the gospel, two of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel in these five verses. But the first one is in verse 17. Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the first thing we run into in this passage is this idea of if anyone is in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have been united with Christ, and what the scriptures tell us is that being united with Christ means that you rest, you receive and rest alone 
on the finished work of Christ in, on, his, on the cross and his raising from the dead. That we are God's people because we rest in Christ alone for what he has done and what he's doing, doing in us. And that if we are in Christ, we are unified with him. We are one with him. We are God's people through Christ. But Paul goes on to say that this person who is in Christ is a new creation. Now, this is quite a startling statement for us to ponder and think about. Paul is saying that if you are in Christ, this is a grand declaration from God through Paul, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That the old has passed away, and then he says, behold, that's a way of saying, look, the new has come. And Paul's pointing to that, and he's saying, if you are in Christ, you are new. The old has passed away, and the new has come. And it's all because we are united to Jesus and his work. But this immediately stirs up in us a question, because I don't know about you guys, but I sinned yesterday. I sinned this morning. You know, I don't... I don't live the new life that I, when I read this passage that I think about, when I think about being a new creation, I think about the works that I do. And my life and my sin and my rebellion against God seems to be a continual testimony that this verse isn't true. Because I keep on sinning either by mistake or because I do it on purpose. I'll tell you that. Even pastors and elders sin on purpose. And we know we're doing wrong, yet we still fall into those same old temptations because we're sinners. Every one of us in here is a sinner. And if y'all are anything like me, you sin against God willfully sometimes. And so that almost screams at us that we're not new creations. But this is such an important point that we be reminded of this. That Paul says that God has declared, regardless of what you did yesterday or this morning, regardless if you looked at pornography this week, Regardless if you uh, snapped at the kids this morning getting ready for work or you treated your spouse like you know you oughtn't treat your husband or your wife or other people or you didn't work hard at your work, whatever it is, the sins that beset us, Paul is saying that you are a new creation. And you're a new creation because God has said so. You are not new because you try really hard to be new. You are new because in Christ, God says so. And that it's our job to trust these declarative statements of God, to rest in these things, even against our own behavior that seems to contradict uh, what God is saying to us. And this sets up for us an interesting uh, theological point and distinction that a lot that Uh, people have talked about for years, the difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is what Paul says here. You are a new creation. God has said so. You have been declared not guilty. If you go into court and you have uh, driven over the speed limit and you know you've driven over the speed limit and you go into court uh, and you stand before the judge and the police officer says something wrong or does something wrong that causes the judge to throw the whole case out, Uh, what does our court system do? They declare you what? Not guilty. But are you really not guilty? No, you actually did it. But the court has said you are not guilty. Justification is just like that. 
God comes in and He says, as the judge of all of the earth, I, what I say comes to pass. Do you remember back in Genesis, people, when I said, let there be light, and I spoke into a void and nothingness? What happened? Light happened. What God says happens. And so even if we are technically guilty in our behavior of sin, God has come and said, trust me, I will declare something new over you. I will declare you righteous. And so that's what he does for us. For all of us who are in Christ, though we have committed sin and are wrong, God has said, you're not guilty. That is a beautiful truth of the scripture. But it doesn't stop there because when we leave that courtroom, God does something to us. We, we leave pondering the grace of God that though I was guilty, I was let off. And these, this is a very small example of what we have done and the cosmic treason that we've committed against God. Nothing compared to a speeding ticket. But it's a similar kind of idea that I think we can understand. But as we walk out of the courtroom, we walk out of that courtroom changed because of the vast difference between what we deserved and what we got. And this is, has to be the basis of, of sanctification. That sanctification is merely the move of God working in us, working out the new life that he has pronounced over us. That we have been saved through Christ, not by our works, but God has work for us to do. But that work flows out of the declaration that God has said about us. Do you follow what I'm saying? Did you see how when, when, we fought, when our righteousness or our righteous works uh, follow the declaration of God and we do it in response to what God has said to us, that we don't deserve any of the credit or any of the glory for what we do, that God gets all the credit and the glory and we're free? We're free. There is nothing that God is sitting back and looking at your life and my life and saying, you're that close to being a new creation. If only you would stop looking at this on the computer, stop watching that TV show, then you'll be a new creation. God's not interacting with us that way. God is saying, you are a new creation, so stop doing those things that are in accord with your old nature because you've been made new. And so any talk about a mission, any talk about what we do and how we live our lives from the time that we are redeemed and saved and brought to God in Christ, we have to start at this place, that all things flow from God. All things flow from his work that he did for us on the cross. And so let's move on to verse 18 and 19. Paul goes on to talk about this mission. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ, who through Christ, see the similar language, reconciled us to himself, we're not doing any work, and gave us, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us this message of reconciliation. Do you see what God is doing there? God is reconciling us to himself. There's a vertical reconciliation, but they're there in, out of flowing out of that vertical reconciliation is a ministry and a message of reconciliation, that the, the ones who have been reconciled have been given the ministry or the message of reconciliation, that this is God's plan, that our work to reconcile the nations because of what God has done in us is founded 
and solidly rooted in God's reconciling of us to Christ. It has to be that way. If we get that backwards, if we try to get God to look at us and be pleased with us because of our behavior in any way, shape, or form, we're distorting the gospel. All of our work has to flow downstream of the gospel that God has already done in our life. But make no mistake, God always gives work for us to do downstream of the gospel. You remember second, uh, or in uh, Ephesians 2, God goes through this, uh, Paul goes through this um, grand description of the gospel, how we're saved by grace through faith and not on ourselves, it is the gift of God. That we were all by nature children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy and with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. How does that chapter end? Paul says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand for us to do. You cannot get away from this idea that God saves us by grace through faith alone, but then gives us a mission. Paul is telling us the same thing in a different way in this passage. So what does reconciliation mean? Reconciliation can have two ideas, relationship or finances. Relationship is that he brings two relationships that weren't at peace and makes them at peace. And so God has, uh, what he's done in Christ is he has taken all of us, all of us by nature are separated from God as, uh, as we were talking about this morning. But God has reconciled those relationships. He has brought us together and made peace with us. Again, God's work, not ours. He did it. He reconciled us to himself in Christ. But reconciliation also has a financial idea where you have two accounts, and it's where you take one account and you bring it in conformity to another account. That's reconciling accounts. And so you have this relational idea and a financial idea. We're going to talk a little more about the relation, I mean the financial idea, um, but think of it this way. You and I and all of us were born with an infinite sin debt. No way we can pay it. And for us to be brought up, we have to, for our accounts, and think of Jesus, his account is infinitely righteous. What are our accounts? They're out of balance. They're not reconciled. But God has reconciled our account with Christ. We'll talk about that a little later in the passage of uh, the significance of that. But I want to get on to a couple examples of what it looks like for God's people to live as agents of reconciliation in our day in this world. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me. I like to go all through the Bible. I already said if, I, if you have your Bibles, so I'm assuming you do. But turn in your Bibles with me to Jeremiah 29. And I just want to try. This is where God worked in my wife and I in a couple of these passages to show us what it looks like for us to be agents of reconciliation in our culture. And in Jeremiah 29, the situation is that God has sent his people, his covenant people, into Babylon, sent them to the city of Babylon to live as exiles in the city. And they were under Babylon's rule, and they were under Babylon's subjection. They were basically prisoners, but they could live in the city and go about and do what they pleased, but they couldn't leave. They were in exile. It was a city that was opposed to them, It was opposed to their culture, opposed to their religion, a city that in every way would be against what the Jewish people were all about. Yet God had sent them there. Listen to what he says in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find welfare. I think we're in a very similar situation in our culture and time. Though we are not, we haven't been carried away politically into exile, the scriptures tell us that we're all aliens and strangers in this land. And that since the fall of Adam way back in Genesis 3, uh, we have this condition of sin and we're living under this curse. This curse that God has imposed, not on us, but upon the whole world, upon all cultures and peoples across the face of the earth. So I don't care where you live on the face of the earth. We are, in a sense, living in exile. We're living in a, uh, a situation that we weren't designed to live in. The world is broken, and, but God has done that for good. He's done that for correction. He's done that to, to cause us to cry out to him. It, God does, does this very same move, but he does it tangibly with his people And he sends them to exile in Babylon. And what does he tell them to do there? But to build houses, to work jobs, right? To grow produce. He tells them to live good family lives, raise your kids. He tells them to pray for the city. He tells them to work for the good of the city. He tells them that if they work for the good of their city, that they will have welfare in the city's welfare. And so I think... This speaks volumes to us in how we're to interact with our world around us, also a culture that is increasingly against our Christian values and our faith, increasingly accusing us of wrongdoing as we try to just live the life out that Christ has given us to live. But God tells us, just, or tells Israel, just as I think he would tell us, live well in this city, live as lights in the darkness in tangible ways, that it matters what house you build. It matters how you perform at work. Simple things that we don't think are Christian, they are Christian. They're part of our call. It's part of our mission to do well with what God has given us. So plant vineyards, live well, work hard, be a light to your neighbors in the tangible ways because they are looking, there is something empty in them that they are looking to be reconciled to their God. They know something's wrong. And God will show up and show up through us in tangible ways as we live our lives well. But he also says, pray for the city and work for its good. I tend to think that sometimes if if a president gets in power that doesn't agree with our political persuasions, we kind of, it kind of feels like a lot of us work against the good of our city. We work because we don't want to see that other party succeed. So we get so angry at the political party that's in charge that we we actually kind of work to tear things down. But God is telling us, work for the good of your city. Now, don't get me wrong. Where other parties are wrong, we should talk about it. And we should speak to it. That's part of working for the welfare of the city. But you hear what God is saying. Your goal isn't to destroy Babylon, which interestingly, in the book of Revelation, Babylon is the exemplary city of evil that God says uh, that he impugns all of mankind. And he says, basically, we're all like Babylon. God will take care of Babylon, but in the meantime, you work for her good. Seems counterintuitive, but we're not good working for the good of Babylon because Babylon will cease to exist at one point. This might make some people mad, but we're not working for the good of America because America is not going to exist at one point. 
as good as this country is and as blessed as we are to be here, heaven won't be America. It'll be heaven. It's, we we are, belong to a different kingdom. And so, but why do we work for the good of this place? We work for the good of this place because of our neighbors and because we live here. And when we work for its welfare, we'll find welfare in our city as well. So that's the first way I think we can be agents of reconciliation. Now, mind you, these are Linnea and I's passages. You can find all kinds of passages about what it, what you should, how you should live uh, and how God will speak to you, particularly through his word, and how he wants you to, to live and interact with your neighbors. These are just our passages. I hope they benefit you, but I would encourage you, find your own. Search the scriptures and find your own, because we've been called to this mission. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 58, if you'll turn over there, Isaiah 58, verse 10, the background of this situation is God is telling, he's got a problem with Israel, and he's saying, I, I don't want to hear your worship. Your Sabbaths mean nothing to me. I'm tired of you worshiping me, and I'm tired of you uh, operating in this Sabbath. So, so the, the Jews in Isaiah's time were still coming, and they were offering sacrifices, and they were doing what the scriptures demanded them by the law. But God says, I reject all of that. Stop it. I hate it. Wow, that's harsh. You mean we can come to church? We can come to church and sing all these great songs and do it according to our traditions, even do it according to the very words of God them, uh, themselves, and God says, I hate it? That's a possibility? I'm not saying that's what he's necessarily doing in our churches, but we should tremble a bit when we read passages like this because Isaiah was technically, I mean, the people of Israel were technically doing what they ought to do. But God had one problem with them. He said, you're not loving the people that I love. You're not caring for the poor and the afflicted and the broken and the hurting. You're going through your religious worship yourself, but you're not caring for the people, your neighbors and the stranger and the alien that are all around you. And because you don't love the people that I love, I don't want your worship. It's a, it's a, it, Isaiah 58, and by the way, Bob Bryant is coming next week. He's going to preach on this passage, and I know he's going to do great, so I don't want to steal too much of his thunder. But that should cause us to tremble. Because I believe that this is one Bible, this is one story of redemption, that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, that everything that we believe about the New Testament is not utterly new, but it's standing on the shoulders of what has happened in the Old Testament. You can't divorce the two. And so we can't just throw the Old Testament prophets away because we think they don't apply to us. They do. Every word of them applies to us. We've got to figure out what they mean. So listen to what God says in verse 10. We'll go down through verse 12. He says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, listen, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Isn't that beautiful? Would we not want that for our families and our churches? Your bones will be strong. You'll be like a garden with fruit and birds come and rest in the garden. Is this not a beautiful description of what we all want our churches to be? And I think that what we do is we define, okay, I want to get close to God. I want our church to grow. I want, we want this community to be a great community that honors God in our city. And what we tend to do, I think, is we tend to say, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to gather up in our, our own buildings, our own houses, and we're going to read the Bible. Don't get me wrong, that is the first place to start, and that is the primary place that we should start. That we have to gather as God's people, and we have to read His Word, we have to challenge each other by His Word.
But there is this mysterious thing that's happening here in this passage where God promises. Remember, Israel was reading the scriptures. They were following the worship of God in the, in the temple. But God says, I don't want your worship. He wasn't blessing them. So there's this mysterious connection between loving our neighbors that activates the things that we want in our churches. I don't claim to understand that, but I don't know how else to read Isaiah 58. He says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry. Now, I'm not saying this, that we need to, high, uh, we need to uh, uh, pile up activities and works to get God to respond. But what I do think is Isaiah 58 is a challenge to us that says that if you are in Christ, because Christ loved you, poor, hungry, helpless, refugee, with no hope of heaven, with no hope of salvation, a future of eternity in hell separated from God. That's what you and I deserved, more than deserved. He says that if we have been reconciled to Christ, we also should have his same heart because the goal is for God to make us more and more like Jesus. And so you hear the work, there's this natural working out of what God has done for us in Christ and how we conduct ourselves in the world. If we are loved with that kind of love, yet we refuse to love our neighbors, what are we? Word starts with an H. Hypocrites. And Israel has a long history of giving themselves to the functions and forms of worship of God without loving the people that God had called them to love. It's what the book of Jonah is all about. People think it's about a big fish. It's really not. It's about Israel being so proud, so proud in who they were as Jews, that when God called them to go preach to the Ninevites and preach uh, repentance to these foreign people, that were the enemies, politically, racially, everything of the Jews, Jonah said, no, I refuse. That's what Jonah's really about. There's the whole Old Testament points us in this direction that God's people were settling for the form and function of the law, but they weren't tangibly living out what God, what the law was meant to show them and instruct them. I think we do the same things in our day. We have been given the very righteousness of Christ. Because we, when we were enemies, when we were poor, when we were refugees, when we were hungry, that's why Jesus, when he tells these stories about the Good Samaritan, he talks about so much caring for these people who are broken and hurting. So, of course, for Lene and I, when we think about that, I lived in the police world, and you hear my grandfather's pain. The best way to deal with those pains and troubles is the gospel of Christ. It is the great salve of all of our troubles and pains. It's how we redeem the brokenness of our world. And certainly traumatic experiences are part of the brokenness of the world. And so when I, when, when we have a heart for cops and police because we've been there. We have a heart for police families because we've been there. We know what it's like. We want to go back to these people because these are the hurting and the broken and the refugee for us. And so I want to challenge you. I'm not saying that you've got to care for cops like I do. But I'm saying if God is working in you through Christ, he's going to give you a heart for someone. He's going to give you a heart to, to care for and love someone, starting maybe with your neighbors. You know, build your houses, plant your vineyards, be a light to your neighbors. But it's going to go also into the tangible care for the hurting around us. Somehow, some way, whether it's feeding the poor, you can do that. 
It's not just giving them food, but really loving people, really giving yourself away. Again, it's not about the behavior or how you do it. It's about having the heart of Jesus. And we should be convicted that if we have received such a great salvation in Christ, though we were every bit in that place, we too should love with the love of Christ because it's a horizontal for us, but it also flows out. Uh, I mean, it's vertical with, uh, between us and God, but it should flow out horizontal. I, I can't read the scriptures any other way. So flip with me back to 2 Corinthians 5. I lost my place. We'll finish here. So go with me the very last verse that we're looking at today. Actually, let's bump up to uh, verse 20. I'll finish with that, this little section on that. He says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Through us. Now, Paul is probably specifically talking about the apostles in this passage. But whatever ministry God has given the apostles, that ministry is meant to carry on through the church. So uh, all of us have been given this ministry that we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is someone who goes in place of a king or a dignitary, right? You're going and you're representing him in the world. That's our mission. I mean, Paul says it in several different ways here. Your mission is to be an ambassador for Christ in this world. And what is it as you go out and you represent him? What has the king given you to say? He has given us to say, God making his appeal, uh, his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, what? Be reconciled to God. That's why we do everything. That's why we build our houses that's why we buy our cars. It should be. That's why we interact with the people that we do. Everything should be about us being an ambassador to proclaim this message, be reconciled to God. Now, I'm not under any illusion. There's many people in churches who have been in, involved in the form and function of church all of your lives. I know I was for a long time. I grew up in church. Didn't, I wasn't saved until I was 19 years old. Though I walked forward and got baptized at eight, I wasn't a Christian until I was 19. I know that I know that I know. I know it because I read it in the scriptures and God turned a light on in my head just like that. So I want to ask you today, though you've been in church all your life, do you know Jesus this way? Is there something in God, is there something in what God is saying through his word today that might be saying, maybe I don't love people the way I should. I don't have that heart for Christ. I don't know what God's doing but I, I want you to hear his words and not mine. Be reconciled to God. Whether that's in a first-time relationship with Jesus and you never have, have the courage just to be reconciled to God. Just lay yourself before him and embrace his cross and his resurrection that you might have life. It could be that God's calling you to greater ministry, that God's calling you to do something with what he has done in you. Be reconciled to God. So let's finish with this passage. Verse 21. Another great description of the gospel. Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember I talked about how reconciliation has a financial, uh, a financial um, uh, perspective to it? That you reconcile accounts? And Jesus started at an infinite positive. He's in the black by an infinite number, but we're in the red by an infinite number. I think that a lot of us view salvation that what happens is Jesus forgives our sin and brings us up to zero. 
And so he's brought us up to zero, but Jesus is still way up here in his account. But he brings us up to zero, and now it's our duty to add to our account because now our debts have been paid. Now we can contribute into the account ourselves. But that is not what this passage says, does it? It says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin. To be sin. Jesus took our sin. He took our debt and he paid it off, that infinite debt, and he raised us up to zero, right? And he says, he made Jesus to be sin. So Jesus pays our debt. We're good there. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. He said, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the very righteousness of God. What an astounding statement. If you are sitting in this room today and you are in Christ, I don't care what you did. I don't care what you're thinking. I don't care what you're struggling with. If you have embraced Christ and are united with him, you are the very righteousness of God. Not because of what you have done, but because Christ has given you all that was empty in your account. But not only that, he has given you in your account his full righteousness. We have the full, infinite righteousness of Christ. That's how God looks at you and I. So when we come to him by grace through faith, he can sing over us and smile over us and be delighted in us no matter what we did this morning. He can sing over us, not because of you and me, but because of Jesus. He loves the image of his son and he loves Jesus, so he loves you and I because we're in Jesus. But don't don't take that to be impersonal. He cares about you and me. And Jesus cares about you and me. He gave his life because he loved us, loved sinners. A sinner like me who every day sins against him. And he continues to love me every day and sing over me his righteousness and his acceptance of me. Though every day I rebel against him and I sin and I hurt him. And I know he does. I grieve his spirit. And so you see how the gospel how the gospel comes in and informs us, that the gospel washes over all of our sin and our trouble. And it's the promises of God and in these passages where he says, you are accepted in Christ. Converse is true, though. If you're not in Christ, where does that leave you? If you're not in Christ, where does it leave you? If none of us who are Christians got here because we see it plainly in this passage, if none of us got here by our own work and effort, in any way, shape, or form, where does that leave you? It leaves you with what our question is asked today. What happens to those who are not in Christ? They are separated from this God who loves people enough to pour himself out and give them his very righteousness. You are separated from that love forever and ever and ever, and that is hell. We talk a lot about flames, but I'm telling you, the separation of your soul from God's presence is more of hell than fire ever will be. I think fire is just Jesus trying to give us some sort of an earthly idea of how horrible it is, but I think it's much worse. That all of us in this world, I don't care what we believe or where we are, we have some semblance of God's presence. But there's coming a day where God will judge the world and he will separate the wicked and send them to hell and they have no hope. They have no hope. There's no hope once you go there, but there's hope today. And so I want to ask you, 
Are you reconciled to God? If not, be reconciled to God and be an ambassador of this great king who frees you up to live and work for him no matter how much you mess up and no matter how weak you are. I'm a weak guy and he's got me up here preaching sermons. I can't believe it, but he does it because he's faithful to his word. It's not me, it's him. That's his mission for all of us. Just be open and available. So be reconciled to God. If you're a believer, join him on his mission and don't let somebody else give their lives doing the mission that God has called you to do. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, this is uh, such a powerful passage for us and just the things that we looked at can be uh, very intimidating and hard and uh, can prick our consciences. And so, Father, if there's any conviction here today, if there's any uh, hurting here today, I pray that you would uh, wash over that with the gospel of grace, that you would meet us as the kind and generous and faithful God who loves the broken and the sinner. You love the Samaritan, the outcast, the alien. You give yourself to people just like us. You are not counting the trespasses of the world against us. You have given us this great freedom. So, Father, would you, would you comfort us? Would you assure us? Would you bring people to you, even for the first time in faith in Christ? But would you also give us this great understanding that you've given us a mission, and there's great joy and delight in pouring ourselves out for you because you meet us there, uh, and you love us with the love of your Son, Jesus. And so, Father, we pray all of these things in your great and holy name, and we thank you for all of this. Amen.